Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Mike, sir, you are no gentleman. Well, I beg to differ. <laughs> I have, have a Jew and have a tea and all those, you know, the way we used to talk back in the day. I, you know, that sounds a little more like medieval times. You know we're just going back to like the Civil War era today, right? Well, you know, what's the difference? <laughs> I guess it's all, in the, it's all in the past. That's right. I guess there's no difference when you when you put it that way, Phil. There's, uh, there's pre-internet and post-internet. <laughs> That's right. That's the only two ages that matter, right? Well, Phil, since we are going pre-internet for both of our movies today, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners which films we're going to be talking about? Well, thank you, Mike. And as I do have the power... <laughs> We will be we'll be doing uh, 1987's Masters of the Universe, and for those who don't know that one, that was uh, the only time so far we've had a live action He Man movie. Yep. And um, we'll be doing 1939's classic Gone with the Wind, which is a huge epic of a movie, uh, starring Clark Gable and Vivian Lee. And the top ten films we'll be covering will be the films of 2010. Yes, so a wide-ranging episode. We've got some uh, science fiction, some Civil War epic drama, and some recent movies. So it should be pretty interesting to see what we've got coming up. Yeah, I must say writing the uh, after the endings was a bit tricky at first, but then I think they sort of clicked. Yeah. Uh, and I, I quite enjoyed them in the end. And I believe you watched Gone with the Wind. I did. You know, I hadn't seen Gone with the Wind since I was a kid. I remember watching it when I was young and probably around 10 or so. And it's been since then since I've seen it. So I said, you know, this is the perfect time. I've got the the Blu-ray box set. It's been sitting in my office for like two or three years. It hasn't even been opened yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and I'm going to watch Gone with the Wind. And I know it's four hours long, which as we all know, I, I think most movies don't need to be more than, you know, two hours. But yeah. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. And I, I think mentally I prepared myself like, okay, this is going to be a slog, you know, but I can get through it. I'm going to, I'm going to force my way through it. And <laughs> um, turns out that Gone with the Wind is absolutely incredible. I loved it so, so much. And I know it's a classic and I know that that doesn't sound like news to many people, but I think it's one of those films that most people assume is going to be long and boring. And I'll tell you, even at nearly four hours, I still wanted more when I was done watching it. I, I love this movie so much. It is definitely now in probably my top ten list of all time. Excellent. Well, it's about 15, maybe f between 15 and 20 years since I last saw it. But I remember enjoying it at the time. But up until, I've seen it since, since in bits and pieces. It's always one of those films where it's... Yeah, but if it's on TV, you never quite catch it at the beginning, and you like right. you watch like half an hour here or an hour there, and you enjoy it as you say. But then something comes up and whatever. But I remember enjoying it at the time. But yeah, I need to rewatch it myself. It's definitely worth it, I think, to sit down and watch it from start to finish. Not even necessarily in one sitting, because that is a long time. I broke it up over a couple of nights. Uh, yeah. There is a nice intermission right in the middle of the film to sort of break it up for you. Uh, but if you haven't seen it before, or if it's been years and years since you've watched it, I really do recommend watching it again. I mean, it is just Clark Gable and Vivian Lee are both utterly magnificent. Vivian Lee gives one of the best performances I've ever seen, and Clark Gable is just pure, pure charm, and there's just so much going on in the film. It reminded me a lot of movies like um, 
uh, Citizen Kane and even Casablanca to some effect. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. going to replace Casablanca as my number one, but it, it definitely made an impact and, and is pretty high on my list now. I really loved it. Yeah, well, I reckon if it was getting made, say it was getting made for the first time today, I reckon it would have become a, it probably would have been a TV series. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, limited series. Right, but it's yeah. it's it's fantastic. I, I loved it. So I'm excited, oh, to, I'm excited to jump into the endings and see what we've come up with. Well, good stuff. Well, we'll do that one first. Do you want to give us a rundown of the effect? Well, a brief rundown because yeah. there are lots of things going on in it. But. I uh, I kept it pretty short just because it's a, it, to try and get into all the nuances of it, I don't think would really do anybody any favors. So uh, this yeah. is just sort of the broad overview. So here we go. Gone with the Wind, 1939, starring Clark Gable and Vivian Lee, and directed by Victor Fleming. So the story goes, Scarlett O'Hara lives on her family's plantation, Tara, in Georgia, on the eve of the Civil War. She's in love with Ashley Wilkes, a man about to head off to the war, who is engaged to her cousin, Melanie. After professing her love to Ashley and being rebuffed, Scarlett meets Rhett Butler, a rich and charming Southern businessman. As the war rages on, Scarlett and Rhett continually cross paths, and Rhett falls in love with Scarlett, although she's not so secretly in love with Ashley still. Eventually, Rhett and Scarlett marry, but it's largely a loveless marriage, at least on Scarlett's part. When their young daughter dies, and then Melanie, who's not only Scarlett's cousin but also her best friend, dies during pregnancy, Scarlett realizes that she does love Rhett after all, and not Ashley, but it's too late. Rhett is leaving, going back to South Carolina. When Scarlett asks what she'll do without him, Rhett famously replies, "'Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.'" Scarlet then vows to return to Tara and to come up with a way to win Rhett back. Oh, excellent. And that is that is the end of the film. And I got to tell you, I was like gut punched at the end of this movie because I had been watching it for four hours expecting <laughs> Scarlet and Rhett to end up together because I, yeah. I didn't remember the context of the frankly, my dear, I, I don't give a damn. I just knew it was in there. And I... I you know, I didn't remember the end of the movie at all. So I was like waiting for this whole movie to be about them finally being happy and together in the end. And then they're not. And I was like, what? I need Scarlet and Rhett to be together. It was like watching yeah. a soap opera. It's <laughs> a crazy ending for like a, a film as well. For a big epic like that, yeah. especially in that time period when films typically had happy endings, uh, it definitely yeah. it was was something different. But I guess when you, you know it's probably because it's based on the book by Margaret Mitchell, and so they kind of had to follow that. That's yeah. kind of yeah. a big thing to change. But but boy, I'll tell you what, man, I was like, what? <laughs> this is not okay. This is not okay. So I may be fixing a few things in my ending as we go. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear what you've done with this, Phil. So go ahead, take it away, and give us your day after okay well as always whenever scarlet is faced with a bit of woe and a bit of drama and things like that she picks herself back up and gets on with her life she's still very much upset but she knows there's no point sitting around the house doing nothing she has vowed to win back the love of Rhett, and she realizes that they will need time to get over the pain of their recent losses she busies herself making sure the house and estate are in order and she attends the funeral of melanie but is rather disappointed to find that Rhett is not there Meanwhile, Rhett has left Atlanta and visited some family before heading off on a tramp steamer to Asia. He has heard the potential for a number of businesses he could start. Feeling this could be the best way to help ease his broken heart, Bonnie's death and Scarlett's miscarriage have left him reeling. During the voyage, a storm hits and the ship he's on begins taking in water and eventually sinks. That's my day after. I do not like the way this is going, sir. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> tread carefully with my beloved characters, okay? Well, I think you need to say Rat needs to tread carefully if he's falling. You know, <laughs> 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 but I'm bumped. Okay, so what have you got for your day after? 
Okay, well, Scarlet returns to Terra. She's well off with the money she has from Rhett, as they're still technically married. She rehires many of her former slaves as fully paid employees, and she successfully continues to run her business. She begins writing daily letters to Rhett, proclaiming her love for him, but he never replies to a single one. Months pass, and Scarlet decides that if Rhett is not going to come to her, she's going to have to go to him. A few days before Christmas, Scarlet arrives at Rhett's South Carolina home. When she approaches the front door, the staff tell her that Rhett isn't home at the moment, but she's welcome to wait. Scarlet does, and she ends up sitting in the parlor for several hours. When Rhett finally gets home, Scarlet walks out of the parlor and stands before him. Rhett is stunned at the sight of her, and he stares at her for a moment, but then he turns and walks away without a word. Scarlet is devastated, but she refuses to leave until she's at least had the chance to talk to Rhett. Unsure of what to do, Scarlet waits in the parlor again until Rhett's housemistress comes and tells Scarlet that she's made up a room for her. The next day, Scarlet is surprised to find herself invited to dinner. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, she's going to poison her. <laughs> Dang it, how'd you know? <laughs> okay, looking forward to seeing what happens at your dinner. Thank you. Excellent. How about your uh, immediate aftermath then? Okay, months have passed and Scarlet has been busy with the family estate. She keeps inquiring after Rhett, but none of their friends and family seem to know where he is. Although a few think he had headed overseas. She has moments of terrible sadness, but she never lets it show. Mammy is still a rock and helps keep her level-headed. Scarlet comes to realise that uh, a large number of orphans have been left after the war and helps finance an orphanage in Atlanta. She also helps out and the experience helps her immensely. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Well, I am hoping for a, a happy ending reveal in your long term, but we shall see what happens. Yes, yes. Wait and see. Okay, what's happening with your dinner in the immediate aftermath? Well, at dinner the next day, Scarlet and Rhett suffer through a painfully awkward meal. Scarlet tries to talk to Rhett, but he drinks heavily throughout the meal and continues to get more and more drunk. The conversation is strained at the very least. Deciding to take matters into her own hands, Scarlet seduces the drunk Rhett and they spend the night together in Rhett's bed. The next morning, Rhett is furious that Scarlet took advantage of him, and, largely still drunk, he throws her out. Despondent, Scarlet has no choice but to return to Terra, where she sinks into a deep depression. She continues to worsen for a couple of months, until one morning when she wakes up and is violently ill. She calls for a doctor, and he reveals to her some surprising news. Scarlet is pregnant. Ah. And if you know me, you, you will know that that's where I'm going to leave you hanging for the moment. <laughs> okay, very good. Yes. All right, so I need to know what's happening here. Let me uh, tell, fill me in. Give us your long term. And it better okay. be a happy ending, damn it. So when the asteroid hit Earth and wiped everybody <laughs> out, it was, no, it was okay. Uh, five years later, and Scarlet, now a well-respected and well-loved member of Atlanta society, has found a kind of peace. A number of men have tried courting her, but she stays true to Rhett. She makes constant inquiries after him and even gets the Pinkerton detectives on the case, but there's no trace of him. Then, one evening during a terrible storm, there is a knock on the door, and Mammy answers it. Scarlet hears a scream and rushes to, to help. She sees Mammy, who must have fainted, being held in the arms of a tall, thin man. He turns to look at Scarlet. She stops and gasps. It's Rhett. Gaunt, tanned, but with a shock of white hair, yet it is unmistakably Rhett. He smiles and then motions to Mammy. Scarlet helps him sit Mammy down, and she soon recovers and sees Rhett and Scarlet embracing. A short while later, Rhett explains of his voyage and being shipwrecked. He had ended up on a strange island and had had to fight for his survival. However, he had befriended some of the natives who worshipped the god that they named Kong. <laughs> Rhett claimed to have witnessed Kong, a sight that caused his hair to turn white. However, he managed to build a boat and eventually got off the island and made it back home. I realised how much I loved you, he says to Scarlet. That kept me going and brought me back here. I love you. 
I love you too, whispers Scarlet, just before they kiss. And that's my long term. Yay. Hey. I love that you combined, you know, Gone with the Wind with one of, my, one of my other favorite movies, King Kong. That's awesome. But I'm more happy that you you gave them a proper happy ending. So, oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But, I okay, did. What's up? What's happened with you then? What's happening with the uh, Scarlet's pregnancy? All right. Well, mine is not a happy ending. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> this is this is me, and we all know where I'm going with this. Scarlet is on the verge of giving birth. She's nine months pregnant, but she's kept busy for most of her pregnancy, running Tara with efficiency and with a new outlook on life. She's decided not to tell Rhett about the baby, finally accepting that their life together was over. But she's over the moon about her pregnancy, and she's found peace within herself. One morning, she goes into labor, and after several hours, she delivers a beautiful baby boy. As she's holding the newborn, she hears a familiar voice. What do you say we name him Mel, after your cousin Melanie? Rhett is standing at the door, and he's beaming. How did you... Scarlet asks, stunned. Mammy reached out to me. You should have known she wouldn't let you go through this alone. Scarlet responds, I like your idea, but I'd already settled on a name. Rhett looks disappointed until Scarlet says, Rhett Jr. Rhett smiles and sits next to the bed, holding Rhett Jr. for the first time. It's the first of many, many happy moments for the Butler family. And that's the end. Ah, oh, lovely cue the music. <laughs> yeah, big sweeping. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, big long shots of them, you know, and the, the sun setting and it's all uh, oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. So. That's very nice, that. Well, I, you know, I decided when I, as soon as the movie finished and, and they were not together, I said, well, I know what's going to happen in my ending because, damn it, Rhett and Scarlett are going to end up together because <laughs> that's what I really wanted to see. So I knew I had to get them together, but I, I really wanted to try and stay true to the, the spirit of the film and I couldn't make it easy for them. All right, well, Phil, I imagine that there must be some pretty interesting trivia about Gone with the Wind, so would you like to be gone with the trivia? Oh, excellent, yes. Well, there was so, like the film, there was so much trivia about the film because it, it did so much, but I've, uh, I've plucked a few interesting little bits. Uh, All right. Hattie McDaniel, who played Mammy, she was the first African-American to be nominated for and win an Academy Award. She got Best Supporting Actress. Very good which is very good. It won a, a boatload of awards. Uh, the, the film had more than 50 speaking roles and 2,400 extras. Wow. You forget that back then when they made films, you know, no CGI. and they are, So they had to get people in for those things. It was the first colour film to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. And also, at nearly four hours long, it is the longest running of all movies to win Best Picture. Hmm. Uh, there was 88 hours of footage once they'd, they'd finished filming, so wow. <laughs> I know that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think I think I read somewhere as well. It was like half a million foot of film. Wow, some crazy like that. Yeah, uh, Gary Cooper turned down the role of Rep Butler and said the film was going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the horse that Thomas Mitchell rode, the horse that he rode in the film, was later silver in the Lone Ranger show in 1949. Oh, cool. Uh, the first scene to be shot was the burning of the Atlanta depot, and that took place on the 10th of December 1938. Uh, if there'd been a major mistake in, while filming that, the entire film probably would have been scrapped. Wow. Because yeah. it was such a big bit. And they also burned many old sets, including the Great Wall from 1933's King Kong. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and all seven of Hollywood's then existing Technicolor cameras were used to film that scene. Huh. And that's uh, Gone with the Wind. Very interesting. There's lots more. It's well worth having a read up about what went on during the filming of it. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, let's move from the Civil War South to uh, the 80s. And let's talk about Masters of the Universe. Phil, do you want to tell us what happens in this uh, cult classic of a film, if you will? Yeah, I think, I think cult classic pushing it, isn't it? It's, yeah, uh, probably a little bit. I remember enjoying watching it when I was a kid. Mm, I didn't even enjoy it when I was a kid, actually. Mm, it's, well, yeah. Directed by Gary Goddard, 
and written by David O'Dell, starring Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langell and Meg Foster, and Courtney Cox in her first feature film role, I think it was. Okay, but the film Onaternia, Skeletor, played by Frank Langella, and his army, they seize control of Castle Grayskull and imprison the sorceress. So He-Man, played by Dolph Lundgren, Man-at-Arms and Teela rescue a guy called Gwildor, played by Billy Barty, who's a locksmith. Turns out he happens to have made this thing called the Cosmic Key, which can open portals to anywhere in the universe by using sound keys. Evil Lynn, played by Meg Foster, hair of the Amazing Eyes. She was in They Live as well, if people aren't sure. Uh, she gets the key for Skeletor, but He-Man manages to get hold of the prototype. And the good guys escape and end up on Earth, but lose the key. It falls into the hands of two humans, Julie and Kevin. Uh, Julie's an orphan, uh, but Julie's played by Courtney Cox and Kevin's played by Robert Duncan McNeil. Who would go on to find some measure of fame in Star Trek Voyager as Tom Paris. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Because I, actually, I watched Masters of the Universe also yeah. uh, just last night. Of course, yeah, that was him, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so they find the key, but they think it's some kind of fancy synthesizer because, you know, it's the 80s. Uh, but while they're playing with it, they manage to send out a signal which Evelyn traces, and she comes to Earth with Beastman and a few other of the bad guys. Uh, meanwhile, a police detective, Lubick, played by James Tolkien, the bald guy who was so cool in uh, Back to the Future and lots of other things, always played that clumpy kind of thing. Uh, he thinks the kid stole the key and confiscates it, but Evelyn captures Kevin and chases Lubick. Uh, but Julia and the Eternians rescue Kevin, but Evelyn summons Skeletor to Earth, where Julia... Julie is mortally wounded and the cosmic key is wiped. He-Man surrenders to save his friends and is taken to Eternia, but he will not kneel to Skeletor. And in some kind of jiggery-pokery, Skeletor absorbs the power of the universe and tortures He-Man. On Earth, Gwildo repairs the key and Kevin remembers what the notes were and plays it and takes them all back to Eternia. Evelyn feels betrayed by Skeletor because she didn't get any of the power and leaves him. But He-Man gets free and breaks Skeletor's staff, removing his powers because, you know, if you're going to get powers, stick him in a staff. That can break. <laughs> Makes perfect so, sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He-Man knocks, has a bit of a fight with Skeletor and ends up knocking him off a ledge and he falls into this pit. Uh, probably never to be seen again. Hey, kids. <laughs> uh, the sorceress heals Julie and sends her and Kevin back to Earth, but Lubick, who's held a he- hero, remains on Eternia. Julie wakes on the morning of her parents' death by plane crash and stops them going, therefore saving them because they've been sent back in time. And Kevin arrives and shows that he's got a souvenir from Eternia, a small blue sphere, which for some reason has He-Man standing in front of Castle Grayskull doing the old, you know, I have the power, I suppose. And surprise, surprise, Skeletor emerges from the water at the bottom of the pit saying, I'll be back. And that's uh, Masters of the Universe. I don't, I don't think you had fun with that at all, Phil. <laughs> I think I enjoyed doing the writer probably more than the film. I can imagine. I do. I do like the idea of the um, of He Man's uh, you know battle cry being "I have the power," I suppose, which yeah. is what you just said a minute ago. Yeah, actually, yeah. Like, it's kind of like I, I, su- I suppose I have the power. Right. Right. I you picture know, like He Man with like glasses, like working in an office. He's like, "I have the power," I suppose. Yeah. I suppose it's down to me. Right. I've got to f- finish these forms though. So right. Uh... Exactly. Got to get these TPS reports out. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Oh, I like it. An Office Space Masters of the Universe mashup would be pretty awesome. I could, I, you know what? I could see that being an absolute hit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But that's uh, that's the rundown of Masters of the Universe. What have you got then, Mike, for your day after? Okay, well, as He-Man and his cohorts leave Castle Grayskull, Gwildor is hit by a hover bus and killed. <laughs> Sorry, Gwildor. <laughs> there's, that, uh, there's that bus driver. God, that Gwildor, man, was just like, I, I love Billy Barty. Like, he's great in some things, but his character in this movie was just grating. I couldn't take him. Oh, no, yeah. he's uh, It's Gwildo was an absolute mill. You just want to 
punch yeah. through it. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so back on Earth, Julie's parents don't end up going on their plane trip and they live, although they ground the heck out of Julie for stealing the keys to the plane and ruining their day off. <laughs> uh, Julie decides not to move cross country and to stay with Kevin instead. Life returns to normal and they make plans to go to the same college and continue their relationship. Back on Eternia, Lubick takes to life on Eternia quite well. He's given a position as a leader of security in Castle Grayskull, and he protects it and makes a nice life for himself. One day, as he's patrolling the castle, he comes across a strange sword and picks it up. He decides to take it home for further study, but he doesn't notice the oh-so-slight purple glow coming from it. Oh, oh. <laughs> and that's my day after. Okay. I've got a bad feeling about that. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why at all. All right. How about your day after? Okay, well, He-Man, Man-at-Arms, and Teela set about sorting out the mess caused by Skeletor. Sorceress deals with the cosmic side of things because, you know, he's taking the power of the universe and putting it in one person and then letting it all get out again. It's got to go somewhere. It's got to be a bit of a mess you need to sort out. Uh, Lubuk uh, travels with He-Man and is astounded by the beauty and strangeness of Eternia. Man-at-Arms sorts out a suit of armor and weapon for the detective. Skeletor skulks off into the darkness. He's serious, seriously miscalculated, but vows to rebuild his power base and return. Lubick is surprised to discover that He-Man is also a Prince of Eternia, but He-Man asks him to keep that a secret. He-Man, or Adam, also explains how he had enjoyed seeing Earth as his mother, Queen Marlena, was originally from there. Mm. She was an astronaut who had, crashed on Earth, who had crashed on Earth. However, while Lubick was from the 1980s, Adam, Prince Adam explained his mother had arrived from the year 2098. Lubick cannot wait to meet her and discuss the future Earth. However, when they arrive home, they are told the Queen has been murdered. Oh, no. That's my day after. I thought for sure she was going to be an ape. An ape? No, no. Yeah, thought maybe you were going for a little He-Man Planet of the Apes mashup. I was thinking a bit of that, but no. I think, I'm sure, in the cartoon, I think his mum was from Earth or something like that. Hmm, okay. Unless I'm thinking, I might be thinking of something else, else, but but anyway. Okay, so what have you got then for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Lubick begins to become more and more intense at work. He starts trying to jail various citizens of Eternia for even the smallest infractions. He-Man and Tila become concerned about him, but he convinces them that he just wants to do the best job he can. They give him the benefit of the doubt, but he continues to worsen. A few weeks later, He-Man arrives at Castle Grayskull to visit the sorceress, and he finds the gates closed. Sensing something is wrong, he calls Tila and Man-at-Arms to the castle as they try to figure out what's going on. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Julia and Kevin graduate from high school, but Julia decides that instead of going to college, she wants to live an exciting life. She's changed since her interaction with He-Man, and now she wants to go to Eternia. Kevin doesn't want to go to Eternia, so he and Julie say a painful goodbye. Then she pulls out her Eternia pendant, holds it in her hands, unsure of what will happen. In a moment, a portal opens up before her. She looks back at Kevin one last time, and then steps through. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Oh, it's, what is that? Uh, Bruce Springsteen pulled onto stage. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. It was a portal to a Bruce Springsteen concert. <laughs> yeah. And that's how she got in the video. <laughs> that's wow. right. Yeah, they don't show you that part in the video, but it's it's really, that's what happens. That would have been truly epic then. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah. Okay. All right. I like that. I like that. Can't wait to see what happens then when she gets to Eternia. If that's oh. where she actually is ending up. Ah, it is. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell us then, Phil, what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. Adam is distraught at losing his mother, but Lubick, with the help of Teela, begins an investigation. Initially out of his depth on the alien planet of Eternia, Lubick soon realizes that people are basically the same, and his detective skills kick in. During his travels and inquiries, he sees all sides of Eternia, from the royal coast to the seedy parts of town. 
He also sees the large number of dispossessed people caused by the constant war with Skeletor. He realises that Eternia is more of a mess than anybody knows. And he can also see how the common folk are disillusioned with the royal family. His list of suspects keeps growing, but his investigation keeps hitting brick walls as the locals don't really like him because he's been seen with the royal family. Hmm, interesting. All right, well, I'm curious to see where this is going to go. Well, I don't think you'll be able to guess, but who knows. Okay, but what's <laughs> happening with, uh, with yours then? All right, back on Eternia, He-Man, Tila, and Man-at-Arms try to break into Castle Greyskull, but find there's a mystic barrier keeping them out. A spectral figure appears before them, and they're horrified when they realize it's Skeletor, <gasps> but it's Skeletor in Lubick's body. <gasps> it turns out a piece of Skeletor's essence was infused in the sword that Lubick found, and it allowed Skeletor to slowly take over his body. Skeletor challenges He-Man to a duel, counting on Lubick's knowledge of hand-to-hand combat and weapons to give him the edge. The two of them battle, and He-Man puts up a valiant fight, but the combination of Skeletor and Lubick is too powerful for him, and Skeletor eventually disarms him and brings him to his knees. As Skeletor is about to deliver the killing blow, Julia's portal opens right behind him, and she steps through. Reacting instinctively, she strikes Skeletor with the Eternia pendant, and in a blinding flash of light, Skeletor's spirit is ripped from Lubick's body and dissolves into the ether with a cry of anguish and anger. He-Man thanks Julia as Man-at-Arms and Tila rush to help him and Lubick up. There's a joyful reunion, and slowly, life returns to normal on Eternia. And that's my ending. Very good. I, I really, I really wanted to work in a thing where where Julia went and got an apartment with like her two best friends, and then like her brother and his two best friends lived across the hall, and <laughs> you know they had like all these zany adventures, but I, I just couldn't make it work. Imagine that, a sitcom like that. Yeah, set right. on the turn here. Right, yeah. brilliant. One of them has a pet flying monkey. You know, like so many things you could <laughs> you could do with it. But yeah, oh, brilliant. We were on a break. Anyway, <laughs> um, all right. So she went to another dimension. <laughs> So uh, how about your long term then, Phil? Okay. Adam becomes He-Man again, the first time since his mother's death. He tracks down each of Skeletor's henchmen and henchwomen and questions them about his mother's murder. The questions turn to torture, the torture turns to death. He-Man becomes a one-man judge, jury and executioner. A punisher, if you will. (laughs) Lubick realises He-Man is doing more harm than good as the general populace are now living in fear of him as well. The sorceress approaches Lubick saying she has tried to stop He-Man, but he is too powerful. She says Lubick, being from Earth, may be able to think of a strategy that will surprise He-Man. Lubick thinks for a while and then says, we need to find Skeletor. And that's my long term. Mm, so so Skeletor becomes the good guy, maybe, and He-Man is yeah, kind of the bad guy. to bring down the mad He-Man. I like it. I well, like I thought because the film doesn't really have much to do with the actual... You don't really see much of He-Man. You might as well make him a full-blown bad guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, the film has so many issues. I, you know, I mean, I, I do know there are some people out there who love it, and I watched it again, and there there are some parts that aren't terrible, but I think it, it, it does that cardinal sin of not being like the cartoon. And yeah, yeah. I get that you want to try and make your own movie, but the kids who were watching it, mean, I, I watched it as a kid, and I was a big He-Man fan, and what I really wanted was to see all the characters from the cartoon come to life. And, and you know, they brought in a few of the characters, and they added all these weird characters who weren't in the cartoon, and they changed a bunch of stuff, and they brought them to Earth, and... You know, it just really wasn't what I think most kids wanted, which which I think is what sunk it at the box office. And and then you combine it with typical 80s cheese and the end result just isn't uh, – it's not great. It's not terrible. I mean, like I said, I watched it again. It's not as bad as it could be, but definitely cheesy is sort of the, the operative word here. Yeah, yeah. Well, Phil, as I know that you are the master of the trivia, why don't you go ahead and share with us any of the trivia you have for us about this film? 
I have the trivia. <laughs> well played, sir. Yeah. Uh, well, it was uh, the film was financed by Canon Films, and it was their most expensive film and cost twenty two million dollars. Mm. Uh, but uh, they saved some money by you, during the miniature shots on Earth. They reused buildings from Blade Runner and Ghostbusters. Oh, that's cool. Frank Langella said Skeletor was one of his favorite roles, and his as his young son was a fan. Sure. I think he just man. It just like the fact he could, you know, probably because his face was covered, but also uh, the, the fact he could just, you know, chew the scenery. Yeah, ham it up. It's definitely he's definitely one of the better parts of the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Castle Grey School's throne room set was two large sound stages knocked through to make one big one. It was the largest set Hollywood had seen in forty years at the time of filming. Wow. Uh, Dolph Lundgren did all his own stunts. Uh, Christina Pickles, who played the sorceress, also played Courtney Cox's mother in Friends. Oh, that's funny. And uh, Meg Foster who played Evil Lynn, uh, they initially wanted to put some contact lenses on her to make her eyes look, you know, scary, but then they realized they didn't need <laughs> they didn't really to need because to, yeah. it's Meg Frost and she's got those amazing eyes. So Exactly. There you go. <laughs> and that's uh, Masters of the Universe. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our After the Endings for Gone with the Wind and Masters of the Universe. So let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we take a particular year from Hollywood history and share our top 10 films. And this week we are doing, just a few years ago, 2010. Yes. So, Phil, why don't you take a quick jaunt in that time machine of yours and tell us what the world was like just about seven years ago. Yes, yes, let's get into it. 2010, what do we have here? The Prime Minister in the UK was Gordon Brown, uh, followed by David Cameron. And over in America, the President was Barack Obama, which was all well and good. Uh, some things that happened, though, the tallest man-made structure, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai opened. The 2010 Winter Olympics took place in Vancouver and Whistler in Canada. Volcanic ash from eruptions in Iceland disrupted air travel, so that probably affected quite a few people out there. The Deepwater Horizon oil platform explodes, and that was uh, we've just recently had the film about that. Uh, five paintings worth 100 million euros were stolen from a museum in Paris, and we had the 2010 World Cup, which held in South Africa and was won by Spain. And the first 24-hour flight by a solar-powered plane was completed, and WikiLeaks leaked thousands of internal reports about the war in Afghanistan. We also saw the deaths of Gene Simmons, Dick Francis, Peter Graves, Robert Culp, John Forsyth, Lynn Redgrave, Dennis Hopper, Gary Coleman, Tony Curtis, Tom Bosley, and Leslie Nielsen. All right, well, that is 2010 in a nutshell. Let's get into the films. And Phil, why don't you kick us off and go ahead and share your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is The Fighter. It's uh, the sports drama directed by David O. Russell, starring Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bale, Amy Adams, and Melissa Leo. And it's basically following the life of uh, Mickey Ward, He's played by Wahlberg and his half-brother Dickie Eglin, played by Bale. And this is one where Bale's quite skinny, lost a bit of weight. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. David O. Russell films, sometimes I really like them, sometimes I don't. Uh, but this one, I, 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 I like Wahlberg and Bale and Amy Adams. And I just, I just quite enjoyed it. It was, uh, you saw this different slice of life. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge guy, you know, it wasn't a huge boxer who's winning all the time. It was just a bit of down-to-earth kind of thing. And the, the problems he had because his brother was into drugs and he was always trying to get the sort of things out like that, just causing more problems. He was just trying to make a living and get through life. And then things around him just kept messing it up a bit. But, uh, but that's my number 10. Yeah, great choice, actually. I really, really do like that film quite a bit. Didn't make my list, although I, I think maybe I missed it when I was going through the film. So it yeah, might yeah. have made my list had I uh, found it, but... 
Apparently I missed that one, so who knows? <laughs> but it is a great film. All right, well, my number 10 is a comedy, and it also stars Mark Wahlberg, though, funny enough. It also, uh, it's Mark Wahlberg with Will Ferrell, and the comedy is The Other Guys. And uh, it is, it's a really funny movie, kind of a sort of, not a parody per se, but a, kind of a takeoff on the buddy cop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, comedies where, you know, it, it sort of it starts off with, you know, these two cops who are like your typical action movie He-Man stars, and then they die, and Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell have to take over, and they are not the typical action star cop buddies. And um, I, I just think it's a really funny movie. It's got some very absurd humor in it, but um, I laugh and laugh and laugh when i watch that movie i agree with you but that's why it's my number nine. Oh, very good yes so i i, I enjoyed it as well uh as i say i love the bit with uh dwayne johnson and samuel L. jackson yeah when they jump off the roof yeah. man that yeah. is there's, there's a bush down there where you jump into that and you just and you're going what what the hell's going on here yeah that's when i knew i loved that movie <laughs> uh, i also like the fact that the crime they're investigating it's quite a serious because it's got the big thing at the end hasn't it like the the closing credits it's all about the the crime they investigated it's sort of based on a real kind of it's all to do with finances and right and things like that but i i just like because it was you know it's it's a very funny film it's a very bit stupid in places but it's all there seems to be this bit of seriousness underneath regarding the crimes they're investigating and, and i quite like the the mix and match of that and but the supporting cast as well because you've got uh ice tea narrating it as well it's uh, adam mckay doing it as well who did the recently did was it was the big short yes mm-hmm it's that kind of thing where he's taken something, he used bits he learned with the the other guys and then used it for the real life thing with the big show. But yeah, uh, this was lots of fun. And as you say, uh, Farrell and Wahlberg were really good t- together in this one. Yes, agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is Resident Evil Afterlife. And I, we've talked on the show before about how I really yeah, like these yeah. movies. They're, they're kind of garbage movies, but I like them anyway. But this one, Resident Evil Afterlife, is to me the high watermark of the series. Uh, it's got the great prison sequence where they're sort of trapped in this mega prison with all thousands of zombies. And then there's the whole thing out on these ships and it has this great kind of cliffhanger ending. And I think it's, you know, Mia Jovovich at her most ass-kicking, and it's the, the special effects look great, and the action sequences are really tight, and it just, it just really works. Like I said, it's not that the movie itself is a masterpiece, but I do really enjoy these films, and this one is my yeah. favorite of the series, so that's why it's my number nine. Well, it didn't make my list, but I know what you mean about that one. It's, I've, I watched some of them uh, over the past couple of months, and yeah, that one, it seemed to be more, probably more coherent, but it just the action seems, seemed a bit more tighter as well than some other ones. But uh, yeah, okay. But uh, my number eight is Tron Legacy. Ah, oh, very good. Because uh, it's it does have its problems, but I do love the original Tron. Uh, I just like the fact it did carry the story on because I always wanted to see more. I was really disappointed the fact that it was set in this computer which was enclosed and didn't link to the internet and stuff because I was really wanted to see what the internet looked like in the world of Tron. I thought that'd be amazing. But uh, I, I liked. I liked lots of aspects of it. Just the story didn't quite gel enough for me, but I did what what wasn't there. I did enjoy, and I thought it looked amazing. It's the scenes were brilliant, and the whole you know the light cycle bits and everything again. And it was also very cool seeing Jeff Bridges uh, looking like the dude in the uh, in the computer world. Right. Yeah, but that's uh, that's my number eight. Very good pick. All right. Well, my number eight is, you know, I think, you you know, this this year was interesting. A, a lot of big films didn't necessarily make my list. A lot of sort of B yeah, titles same here, yeah, made yeah. my list. And this is definitely one of them. It is The Last Exorcism. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never saw that one. Oh, well, you should definitely see it. It's it's really, really cool film that I enjoy quite a bit. And it's about this uh, guy 
played by Patrick Fabian, who's just absolutely astounding in the lead role. And that's part of why I love this movie so much. It's like it's like Michael Parks level of, you know, just really this intense, great performance. And he's basically like a fake exorcist who goes out and, you know, it finds it's usually pregnant teenagers or people having mental illnesses and things like that. And he goes and, and you know, he, he sees this girl. She's having this exorcism and stuff. And, and he basically still doesn't believe that it's a real thing. And I actually am not going to say whether it is or not because that's what's so brilliant about the film is it really keeps you guessing as to whether there's actually any sort of demonic possession going on or not. But I really love this movie. And Patrick Fabian's performance, I don't know why he isn't a bigger actor yet. He's in a Better Call Saul. Oh, is he? He plays... He plays Howard Hamlin. He's like a law guy who works with uh, Saul's brother. Oh, good. And he's he's absolutely brilliant in it. He's amazing. He's been in every series so far. And you st- he starts off, you think he's an absolute, you know, idiot and you hate him. Right. But then as it comes on, you realize he's probably the most noble person in the thing. But he's absolutely fantastic in that. Oh, good. So I didn't realize that was him in The Last Exorcism. Yeah. So I'll, def- I'll definitely have to watch The Last Exorcism. Now. Yeah, it's really cool. And he's just do, utterly like fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know he was, I didn't realize he was on that, Um, but he's, uh, I'm not surprised that he's so good because this movie, he's, he really steals the show. So, worth tracking down. It's, it's a really cool, it does something a little bit different with a, what I think is a fairly tired genre, uh, the Exorcism film, and, and kind of turns it on its head a little bit, turns it sideways, and I really liked it. Oh, excellent. I'd forgotten about that film. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, my number seven mm-hmm. is Four Lines, which was uh, directed by Chris Morris, who did the wonderful TV shows The Day to Day and Brass Eye, where they're like very satirical and taking the mickey out of the news and things. And it's a jihad satire following a group of homegrown terrorist jihadis from Sheffield in England. So it just screams comedy to you, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. But it's, uh, no, I remember seeing this and I, th- I was thinking, I remember seeing it was, you know, the trail and stuff and you're just going, oh, that's so wrong. You can't do that. But then you watch it and it's hilarious. And the characters, you're going, what the hell? Because lots of them are thick and they've just been manipulated and they're doing all this stuff. And it's just, Riz, Ar- Riz Ahmed, I think was the first thing I'd seen him in. It's funny and it's really sad as well because you you know what happens and goes on. But you can't, you're, you're laughing at these things you shouldn't be laughing at, but... It just drags you along and you just, it just made me, I was chuckling all the way through and there's some big belly laughs as well. It's, it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it and you're looking for some kind of comedy based, you know, to lighten the mood about the terrible things which have been happening over the past few years. Right. Yeah, I have seen Four Lions actually, and I don't know if maybe I didn't get the humor as much because I'm not British. I don't know if the, I don't know if it's one of those things that doesn't translate as well or if maybe I just didn't work as well. Maybe, yeah, because it is, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, yeah, it could be a bit, but I, I didn't dislike it. I just I I didn't really love it either. It was just sort of one of those yeah, movies. Yeah. I was like, all right, I liked it. It could have been better, but you know, but it's interesting. Well, I found that with uh, lo- loads of films in 2010. Yeah, yeah, that for exact sure. Same feeling. Yeah, I liked it, but eh, that is definitely a good thing, yeah. a good descriptor for 2010, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, my number seven is The Crazies. Directed by Breck Eisner, starring Timothy Oliphant and Rada Mitchell. It is a remake of a George Romero film, and I really love this movie. I think it's a super cool horror flick. And what I like about it, too, is it's the kind of horror flick you can show to people who don't like horror, and they'll yeah, they'll yeah. enjoy it. I, like, I made my wife watch it, and she really liked it, and I think I had my in-laws watch it, and they really liked it. It's very tense, and it's very scary, but it's not overly gory except for a few bits here and there, but it's mostly about like the tension and and it's just a really cool kind of be it's your typical sort of outbreak 
not quite zombie, more like rage virusy type of thing. You know, people yeah, go crazy, yeah. hence the name. Um, but Timothy Oliphant is great. It's good to see him in a leading role. And I just really enjoy this movie. It's just a good, visceral, fun, exciting horror film that doesn't go over the top. And, and I really like that about it. Yeah, no, I enjoyed the. I, I did enjoy that film. It didn't quite make my list, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I enjoyed Timothy Oliphant in pretty much anything. And it was, I thought it was a pretty decent remake as well. It took the original concept and just went with it. And it, as you say, so, so, so tense in places. Yeah. And some good set pieces when you get like certain people just going crazy. And I mean, there's a bit of dragging the fork, isn't there? He's, he's going down yeah, the, that's the such a great well. scene. Yeah, I love yeah. that. An excellent pick. Okay, well, my number six is a film co-written, directed by and starring Ben Affleck, and it is The Town. And it's basically following a group of Boston bank robbers who have one last score. And it's all, you know, you've you got these guys who are crooks. And I like the fact that they're, they're like proper crooks because, you know, some of them are going to, you know, you can't trust them. And who's, you know, you've got to they, they really know what they're doing. But then when this last score comes along, some of them think the other ones are turning against them. And then you've got the, the, CIA, the FBI after them. And there's lots of twists and turns. And I, I just really liked it. I mean, dude, I, I've, I've quite enjoyed most of Ben Affleck's films when he's directing them. Uh, and I, I just thought this one came together well. And I, to be honest, I enjoyed the director's cut a lot more. Because that adds a few more scenes and you fills in a few gaps and things. But I, I enjoyed the original film as well. Yeah, good pick. I, I like The Town. And I think um, it's one of those movies that I I recognize as being really well made. And I like Ben Affleck as a director. And yet this is a film that I like but I don't love. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a good film. So I mean, no complaints for sure. Oh, good stuff. Okay, so what's your next one? All right. My number six has appeared on your list. And it is Tron Legacy. Oh, I had a feeling it would. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's funny because we just last week we did 1982, and that was when the first Tron came out. And so here we are just a week later with Tron Legacy. Uh, and yeah. much like you, the film has some some flaws without a doubt. I don't love the CGI Jeff Bridges. Uh, and, you know, story-wise, it's not exactly where I wanted it to go. Um, but I do like that they, they got, you know, some of the original cast back. Obviously, Jeff Bridges, Bruce Boxleitner cameos in there. Yeah, what, yeah. what I really love about it, though, is just the visual look of the film, especially effects wise it's amazing and the action sequences like the light cycle battle is mind-blowingly cool i mean they really took that to the nth degree and to to this day one of the greatest oscar snubs of all time in my opinion is the fact that tron legacy wasn't even nominated for best special effects yeah it should have it should have at least been nominated oh, i mean it should have yeah, won definitely. but it, it's yeah. it's one of the most visually stunning films i've seen in a long time it just looks so amazing so i you know i, I take some credit some points off for the for the story and the characters and whatnot, but just just watching it as a visceral experience, man, it is really really cool. Yeah. So, and I love the universe of Tron, so it's it's on my list, number six. Yeah, excellent choice. Uh, my number five is one called Morning Glory. It stars Rachel McAdams, Harrison Ford, Diane Keaton, Patrick Wilson, and a few others. And it's basically uh, Rachel McAdams. She's brought in as a executive producer on a a morning show. It's based in New York City. It's losing viewers and things. So she brings in Harrison Ford, who plays. Uh, a serious uh, news journalist and anchor, she brings him in and he doesn't really want to be there because he doesn't consider it like real news and he's, his co-host is Diane Keaton who's been there from the beginning. But it's, uh, I, I just really liked it. It reminded me of the old screwball comedies of uh, of yesterday, like with uh, His Girl Friday and things like that. And I just I just like the chemistry between uh, Rachel McAdams and Harrison Ford and Diane Keaton, everybody involved. Jeff Goldblum's in it as well. Uh, I just and it's I like because you're seeing behind the scenes of them doing this TV show, the things that get involved and what you need to do. I I just really liked. It. I've always got a soft spot for Rachel McAdams as well, and uh, she did a cracking job with this. And it, it's one of those ones you're watching it and you just enjoy it. Yeah, you know what's funny? I really like that film actually. That's yeah, a good yeah. call. I don't think I saw that one when I was going through the list, or maybe I forgot. I didn't catch the name. 
as for what it was. But now that you mention it, I really enjoyed that film. I think it was an, a, a yeah. really top-notch movie with a great cast and a great ensemble that just didn't didn't take for some reason. But I wish it had. I wish more people had seen it because it's really good. Yeah, I think if people go and watch it, I think they'll be the same. They'll realize, you know, it's a, it's a lovely it's a lovely little film with yeah. some big stars in. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Good choice. Very good. I like it. All right, thank you. All right, well, I decided to one-up you, though, and go even more obscure than that film okay. for my number five. And it is a movie okay. called The Joneses, which stars David Duchovny, Demi Moore, and Amber Heard, and a lot of other great people. I've seen that one. I've forgotten about that one. Yeah, I really love yeah. this movie. So basically, it's you know David Duchovny and, and Demi Moore and uh, kind of move into this nice, posh neighborhood with their, with their two teenage kids, and everybody really likes them and wants to be like them, and there's something off about them. It's not a horror film. It's, it's definitely more of like a, a drama, a lighter drama. Um, I don't want to say what it is because I think the payoff is really cool, but it definitely has um, kind of a message about America and American life and that whole keeping up with the Joneses sort of mentality that people take and great performances across the board and just a really cool story, something different, something unique, not something I've seen before really in any other film and a movie that is criminally underseen. If you're looking for something interesting to watch, I really recommend checking this one out. It's a it's a cool little flick. Uh, check it out. It's called The Joneses, and I'm a big fan. An excellent choice. Okay, well, my number four is uh, based on a comic book series by Warren Ellis and Cully Hammer, and it is Red, starring Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, John Malkovich, Mary Louise Parker, Helen Mirren, and Carl Urban. And it's, you know, Bruce Willis plays this guy who's a retired CIA agent. He comes out of retirement because people are trying to get him, and he meets up with some old friends. And it was, I, I like the... I like the action scenes and I like the I like the humor uh, and it's just it was it was a very cool little film. I thought it was a cracking little film and a good uh, a good expansion on the limited comic book series which I also enjoyed. Yeah, it's a great pick. I actually really like Red and it's one of those ones that just didn't make my cut for some reason. I think it just kind of yeah. got edged out, but I do really enjoy the film. Yeah. It's one of those films you sort of forget about, and then it comes on TV, and you're going, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if I'd seen it more recently, I probably would have put it on my list, but I don't think I've seen it since it came out. But I did really enjoy it. And Carl Urban is super cool in that film, too. Oh, he's really good in it, yeah. Good choice. All right, well, my number four brings us back around to the comedy side of things, and it is She's Out of My League, starring Jay Baruchel, Alice oh, Eve, yeah, and yeah. T.J. Miller. Um, and this followed not too long after a couple of similar movies that I also really love, Role Models and um, I Love You, Man. And I kind of feel like even though this doesn't have Paul Rudd in it, it's sort of like the third chapter of that trilogy. <laughs> like if you yeah, like yeah. those two movies, this movie fits right alongside it. I feel like it's got the, the very similar style of humor, and it's, it's really funny. Like it makes me laugh out loud and uh it's a film i just really really enjoy i i i like the concept because there's so many of these rom-coms where it's like this beautiful girl and then she ends up with this like schlubby kind of guy and you're like you know how what world does that happen in but this movie sort of takes that and runs with it and makes it believable and charming and enjoyable and it just makes me laugh it's just got some really great jokes and it's it's funny from start to finish that's an excellent choice didn't make my list but i have seen it and i did really enjoy it yeah i agree with everything you said there very cool okay well uh, we're into the top three now yes my number three is toy story three. Oh, very good i and i was in, i enjoyed the bit you know it was uh you know during the 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 school the preschool and the little kids are doing that and then it's like the great escape and they've got to get out things like that but it's uh it's when when they're all end up in the uh going into the what's it called incinerator yeah the incinerator and they all hold hands i remember sitting in the cinema and just going oh, oh like that but that's just really hit you but uh i, I still don't think it was quite as good as toy story 2 but it's i really enjoyed it i i think all the toy story films have been spot on and uh, it's my number three 
Very good choice. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, it did not make my list. I like Toy Story 3. As it's a Disney film, that might surprise people. It's not on there. But it's also a Pixar film, which means yeah. some people yeah. may not be surprised. I do like it. It's a good film. Uh, but just there's something something missing for me. It's one of those movies I enjoyed, but I just I really never felt the need to go back to it and watch it multiple times. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, good stuff. Excellent. All right, well, my number three is probably the inverse of your Toy Story 3 because it's a movie that I'm guessing will not be on your list because it is by your favorite director, Christopher Nolan, and <laughs> it is Inception. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I love Inception. Obviously, it was a monster hit worldwide. I think it, uh, as Mark Kermode rightly points out, it proves that blockbusters can be intelligent, which is something that most movie studios seem to have forgotten these days. Uh, it's a it's a complex film. It's really twisty and turny. Um, you know, it's it's visually stunning and just some amazing like fight sequences and special effects sequences. It's just so cool. Leonardo DiCaprio is fantastic. Uh, I really love this movie uh, and we did an after the ending for it uh early on in our run i believe oh yeah inception was episode 14 when we did after the ending of that and the three amigos there you go that was a fun one so it's yeah, uh they tie in together nicely <laughs> very much so yeah but it, it's just a great movie I, I do think it's really what a blockbuster should be nowadays i love that it's an original idea and it's just it's just so cool so that's my number three well i like bits of inception right it really just i remember watching it and going out and going is that it <laughs> it just well, irks me you're crazy that's all i have to say about that someone somebody needs to go in and incept you to like inception no i've got defenses set up that can never happen (laughs) all right yeah but uh, my number two is a film called monsters directed by gareth edwards who did a little film called star wars rogue one Mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it uh but i quite like this it stars scoop mcnary and whitney abel where they're uh, in Mexico and he's a photojournalist and he's trying to escort this woman back to America through the infected zone because it's uh, alien creatures have crash landed in the past and you're not sure where they are. And it's basically, there's not that much alien stuff in it, but it's mainly these two people going through the, uh, the jungle in Mexico and seeing things that have happened, you know, terrible things done by, supposedly done by the creatures and then you realize it's being done by you know, the army and things like that. And it's what they've been told by the news isn't necessarily true. And it's just, you see these these two characters coming together and the relationship developing and it all gets uh, strange and, and weird when they see certain things. And then at the end, there's this big, you finally see what you've been waiting to see the whole way. But it's just, I like this. I like the fact it was a small film dealing with these big ideas. And I thought it looked beaut- beautifully shot. And some of the effects, when you realize Gareth Edwards did them himself, I think in, in his bedroom or something stupid like that. On yeah, yeah, it's true. It's uh, and you're just going, oh my, oh my god! Especially the bits at the end with the the alien creatures, and you're just going, what? And it's uh, and it's a cracking ending as well because you're suddenly going, oh my god! And you want to know what happens, but uh, the sequel, Monsters Dark Continent, doesn't really follow on from that, so don't bother watching that. Yeah, but the first one I really enjoyed. I thought it was a great little indie movie. You know, I think the Monsters is one of those movies where I let myself get too hyped up about it. I saw Gareth Edwards at New York Comic Con that year, and he did yeah. a Q and A, and I met him, and he showed some clips from the movie, which were brilliant. And I, I just let myself get so excited. And then when I watched the movie, I remember just again, it's such a, such a theme this year: liking it but not loving it. I, I do like the film, but it didn't make my list because it just couldn't get me as excited as I wanted to get about it once I watched it. So and I didn't I didn't like the ending as much either. So yeah, I think lots of people went into it expecting like a big alien action movie, and it's nothing like that. And I knew that going into it because yeah. he made it cl- very clear to point out that that was not what it was, and I and I was okay with that. I just still couldn't. 
I don't know. I think between the ending and something, I don't know. I just couldn't get as into it as I wanted to. Not fair enough for you. All right. Well, my number two is a Disney film. Shocking, I know. It is Tangled, the story of Rapunzel, which I do not think it's nearly enough love. I know it was a big hit. It grossed over $200 million, but I feel like it got – kind of forgotten in the wake of Frozen. Like, Frozen became, like, this merchandising phenomenon. And I, I don't see why, because Tangled is such a better movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I absolutely love Tangled. I think that they – Mandy Moore and Zachary Levy as the two main characters are fantastic. And I think there's so much great humor in the film, the whole bit with the frying pan. And it just works for me on every level. I've watched it with my kids a million times. And it's one of those movies that, you know, we watched it when they were pretty young when it came out. And they liked it. And I watched it the first time and was like, this movie is fantastic. And then we watched it over and over and over again because there was a period of time when that's all my kids wanted to watch. <laughs> and I and I, instead of getting tired of it, I loved it more and more every time I saw it. And I, I just think it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. It's got humor and it's got emotion. It's got romance. And the ending makes me cry. And it's just – I think it is really Disney at the top of their game and, and also proving that Disney animated – proper can outdo Pixar any day of the week. No, that's an excellent choice, and I had a feeling it would pop up on your list. Yes, definitely. But I bet you didn't expect for my number one to be Tangled. Is it really? It certainly is, yes. Oh, that's because awesome. Because I, I enjoyed the hell out of this one. I, as you say, it's... Uh... Well, I'm sorry I talked so much about it then. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's quite all right, because I, I, I know how much you love it anyway. It's uh, it's just, it did everything right. It really does. Yeah, it's, and I just say Frozen was this, this huge phenomenon. And I remember watching Frozen and going, and when it all sort of took off with Frozen, I was going, what well, What about Tangle? Right, exactly. That's so much better. It's like the story covers so much more ground, more characters, more fun, more action. Yes. Uh, and it's just, he's got some beautiful visuals. I always felt Frozen was just such a small little story. And, and then that was it. But yeah, Tangled is just the great characters. You know, it's a powerful lead role of, you know, Rapunzel. She's amazing. Yes. Uh, Zachary Levy as Flynn Rider is just amazing. Oh, he's fantastic. He's so good. And it's just, it's all a support cast. You know, you've got all the, uh, the thugs and yes, things when right, she goes to the right. tavern. Yep. And is, was it the drunk guy is like a little, with the beard? Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. like a little yeah. Cupid and yeah. stuff. There's just so much going on. It's weird. And you, you watch it, as you say, you watch it over and over. You see more and more because uh-huh, there's so many little uh-huh. jokes that just fly by here and there. And, you know, visual jokes, things like that. And it's just, it's just and the horse as well. Yeah, yes. You should know this is the strangest thing I have ever done. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's just just, just brilliant. Even the the songs are great. Like, we had the soundtrack. We'd play it in the car with my kids, and every song in that movie is really good. Some beautiful scenes, the bits with the uh, the lanterns flying into the air. Yes, yes. Yeah, it just does everything right. It just does everything right. Yeah, and uh, the the introduction to Flynn Ride as well, when he's doing the heist. Oh, yeah. I always love a heist, but that was a great little action sequence just by itself. Yep. I think it's one of Disney's best films. Absolutely. That's my number one. Well, I am excited so, to hear you say that, Phil. That makes me very well, happy. I, th- I thought it was going to be your number one, to be honest. So, but if it's your number two, what's your number one? Well, are you ready to be confused? Yeah. It is Frozen. <gasps> I am confused. <laughs> it is not... It is not the story of Anna and Elsa and Olaf, however. It is a different oh, movie yeah, yeah. called Frozen. Yes. Of course, yeah, I've, I remember this one. And it is, it, it's by Adam Green, who's most well-known for the Hatchet series of films. He's a horror filmmaker. Uh, and this is kind of a horror film, but really more of like a survival thriller movie. And it's about these three teenagers who get stuck on a ski lift over a holiday weekend. They shut the ski lift down, and they're hanging out in the middle of you know of the the mountain yeah you yeah. know 50 feet up in the air and they 
they can't stay out there because they're going to freeze to death and they have to try and figure out how to get down. And it is one of the best movies ever. I love it so, so much. I, I mean, I'm a sucker for the genre of survival thriller anyway, but it's so well done. It's got uh, Sean Ashmore in it and um, the the three characters are really well developed. Adam Green has a great ear for dialogue. He writes very realistic characters. Oh, he should, yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he does. And he, they go through all of these ideas to try and figure out how to survive. And there's, you know, there's the height and there's the cold and there's the wolves and all kinds of stuff. And it's just such a really, really intense movie. I mean, from the start to the very end, it never lets up and your like heart is in your throat. And again, I, this is another movie. I, I made my wife watch it, made my in-laws watch it. I make everybody watch it. And everyone who sees it loves it. And then, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but then... There's on the Blu-ray, there's a making of documentary that's a feature length. that's about an hour and a half, just about as oh, okay. long as the movie. And it is every bit as good as the movie. I watched the movie and I watched the documentary back to back and I've done that twice. And I never watch special features more than once. And the, the documentary is every bit as good a film as the movie itself is. It's just it's just fascinating to see the story of how – and you wouldn't think it would be because it's just a couple kids up in a ski lift. But yeah, I know. it's yeah. so, so good. So I, I love this movie and I, it's one of those films that since it came out, I've been championing for people. I will tell anybody who will listen about it if I've ever do like a top horror movies list or anything like that, Frozen is always right at the top of it. It is one of my favorites. No, it's a really good film. I, I have seen that as well. I, 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 to be honest, I'd forgotten about it. Yeah, most people have. It wasn't a big hit yeah. or anything. But And as yeah. much as I love Tangled, this was a movie that – really just had an impact on me i just think it is absolutely brilliant i love any film that can take like the simple concept and make it just so riveting from start to finish you know that's that means a lot to me so yeah i think that's what it is you, you hit the nail on the head it is a simple small little concept but it just it does it really well yeah yeah you definitely yeah. like you feel like you can't even catch your breath like watching this movie well though you did surprise me with that choice but i can see why you it's your number one yeah yeah i love it but excellent choice but uh, some good list there thank you yeah yeah a lot of good yeah. movies definitely like i said not the biggest year for films but some really cool stuff i think some some that are a little different yeah yeah all right well that wraps up this week's installment of 100 years of hollywood in 100 episodes for 2010 next week we will bring you a whole new year of movies as as well as a couple of new after the endings. So, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Next week, we'll be going after the ending of Office Space and Hancock. So that should be a bit of fun for both of them. And we will be doing the top 10 films of 1978. All right. Good old 70s. Should be some classic ones in there and probably some forgotten gems. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to that as well. All right. Very cool. Well, we hope you will join us then. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Mm, yeah. Well, so this is... Our... PI and OPI as well. That sounds good. So, all ages Magnum. What? All ages Magnum. You know, he was a PI. Oh, man, that was a stretch. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> that went off on a tangent, didn't it? Yeah. I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, not many people know about the Tom Selleck cameo in one of the films we're doing today because he, he was actually the stunt double for Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind. Well, they did have very similar mustaches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just for the no, record, exactly. though, have you been drinking before? <laughs> no, no, but uh, it's, it is a well-known fact as well that uh, Tom Selleck did buy Clark Gable's moustache and that's what he, he did use for his career. Oh, I, I did not yeah. realize that. Yeah, it was a very lucky moustache. Well, clearly, it's obviously it's worked very well for both of them.
Yeah, I think it's retired now, though, and it's living in uh, Barbados. <laughs> Until somebody else buys it. Yeah. Pretty soon, Orlando Bloom is going to buy it so he can get like a career <laughs> resurgence, you know? <laughs> Orlando Bloom with Magnum's Tash. Be yeah, awesome, though, but not just Orlando Bloom, but like Legolas Orlando Bloom, like with <laughs> the long blonde hair and then the Tom Selleck stash. Like, how awesome would that be? Oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be worth uh, If we have any, any listeners who are artists, please draw that and send it to us because I really want to see what that, that looks that'd like. That'd be amazing. That'd be really good. <laughs> Here we go. Gone with the Wind, 1939, starring Vivian Lee and Rhett. No, not Rhett Butler. He didn't star in the movie. <laughs> that would be weird. Here's Mike and Phil at the Comic-Con yeah. type of thing, you know. Well, my God, look at her. Look at that cosplayer. What's she yeah. wearing? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Phil, I can't believe you decided to dress up as Harley Quinn this year. Well, everybody else is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than your Poison Ivy costume, though. <laughs> Oh, man, I just had a drink of water then. I was close. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I need to watch it again. I only saw it the once. Yeah, you never Maybe know. Maybe I should, yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to watch it again. That's the trouble. <laughs>